0: This time on Poll Hub, we have replaced the hosts of this podcast with AI-generated voices. We hope you find it enjoyable. Not true, but it could be someday, maybe soon. And it's already the case that AI-generated text, images, voices, and video are flooding our world. There's a lot of potential, but there's also a lot of risk. So we're taking a look at what Americans think about this revolution in our midst. Then, we're taking a ride in driverless cars. Those AI-powered vehicles were once science fiction. but They're now coursing through the streets of a few major cities, and there's a bit of a backlash. We'll look at that, and we finish with a fun fact from the dawn of the computer age. Are you sensing a theme here? When AI was, to most of us, Rosie the Robot on the Jetsons. That takes us back. We've come a long way, or have we? Let's get to it. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Dapper.
1: I'm Mary Griffith. I'm Rebecca Hendricks.
0: And I am Lee Maringob.
1: Well, Lee and Jay, the intro to our first segment asked the question, have we gone too far already? We're posing that question this week in relation to AI, artificial intelligence, and is the technology something that is already out of control? So let's start today by taking a look at an A-B test that was done by a team of researchers at IBM. They uh, spoke with, or they reached out to rather, about 1,600 employees for an unspecified global health care. Here's how the test went. They put together two different phishing emails. One was written by IBM's X-Force team. The other have got an email written by ChatGPT. So 14% of the employees who received the email, the phishing email written by humans, fell forward and clicked on a malicious link. 11% clicked on the link that was included in the chat GPT version. But here's the interesting part of this, that it took only minutes for the team at IBM to generate the email that was uh, written by chat GPT. Usually in a test like this, it takes her team 16 hours <laughs> to write a believable phishing email, which is staggering. Digging deeper into the technology and the amount of people who have clicked on a a phishing email or a link in a phishing email, 84% of survey respondents, according to Proofpoint's State of the Fish Report, faced at least one successful phishing attack in 2022. So AI can do a lot of things. It can trick us with words. It can trick us with images. It can trick us with videos. And there are implications beyond just this type of situation could actually impact the 2024 presidential election.
0: Yeah, I think that the IBM thing is so interesting because it's we at Marist, obviously, every organization, you've got cyber teams working to protect us and phishing emails are one of the ways that bad actors get into organizations and steal information and lock down information. All these bad things you hear about almost always starts with a a phishing attack. And so it's so interesting that they were testing this within their, their unit. And I think what it says is that you know AI in this case wasn't quite as good, but it was so close to quite as good, and for so much less time that it kind of points of the way of where AI, not just ChatGPT writing stuff, but in all these different ways, is changing things. So when we talk about text and video and audio, the deep fakes is what they're called that are proliferating uh, across social media, and with the Israeli uh, Hamas war this has really come into real focus. This is happening right now in real time where there are huge numbers of fake videos and fake uh, images that are being portrayed as real, as news or as actual facts on the ground. And I think the worry is that it's not a future, it's here, it's now, we're seeing it in this war. And if you can imagine what bad actors could do in an election, because remember, you know candidates do dumb things, right? And they get caught doing dumb things on camera. But if you can make them do dumb things on camera, even if they're not real, plenty of people believe it because we have this you know, missing trust factor. So I think this is not a, wow, I hope this doesn't happen. It's happening now. And I just worry that we're not remotely prepared to deal with it. Yet all of us looking at social media, looking at these guys, that none of us are prepared to deal with it. I don't know. Maybe that's too doomsday, but I'm really worried. Yeah, I think the joke around
2: the office is whenever I cite a political comment or statistic from X, formerly known as Twitter, everybody says, what's the source? And then I find some either legitimate source or some kind of obscure source to which I'm castigated for distorting information not publicly this is just office chatter however uh you make as it sound evilly well it, you know because people you know i'm so excited sometimes by some information i've stumbled across and then the rug gets pulled out from under me and now we come to a whole new world and i think you both make very valid points for those who say i don't want any part of this that's like you know the oxygen we breathe and the uh the sky above us, it's here, as you say, Jay. And it's not a question of whether we want it or not. It's how we're going to control it and whether it is controllable. And as, you know, the political scientist in me, the danger in all, this is not Putin influencing the 2016 elections. We don't have to go that route anymore. You can go right up in your own campaign or anybody else for that matter. And create what is for all intents and purposes indecipherable from the reality. We've all enjoyed some of those Stephen Colbert takeoffs where they have people saying different words and they start to distort things or they edit things funny. This is nothing like that. This is really good stuff. Good in quote in quotes there. This is really very, very deceptive material and I can't imagine that the campaigns, if not consistently, will, at a critical moment, drop something that the recovery time isn't long enough to to undo the damage. So, yeah, I think this is a whole new world uh, of communication and one that we are totally, totally not prepared to handle.
1: Well, I think that we need to take a step back, though, and and think about this in terms of being consumers of information. Mm -hmm. We've spoken a great deal for the better part, rather, of a decade about fake news and misinformation. And we need to keep a critical or a skeptical lens toward the information that is presented before us. If, if Barbara were here, I would venture to guess that she would say that you need to have some knowledge about the topic that is being presented to you using AI or artificial intelligence or the information that comes to us via technology like ChatGPT, because you need to be able to know whether or not the information that's being given back to you is valid or if there are holes in it.
0: I did want to mention that there is a, there's an AP NORC poll that came out just in the last couple of weeks about this question about deep fakes and whether that would influence the election, something that we're concerned about. And what was interesting to me about this is we see partisan divide in everything. In this poll, 58% of all Americans said that they believe that AI is going to cause a big increase in the spread of false information during the election. So what do you think? Do you think there's a difference between Republicans and Democrats in that? I know you, Jay. It's identical, I'm guessing. So it's 61% and 61%. Yeah, it's identical. Yeah. Where have we had Republicans and Democrats agree identically on anything?
2: Well, there is one place, and that is that there's a threat to democracy, which both Democrats and Republicans agree with, even if they have different reasons as to why there is that threat. But you're, you're right on on this, Uh And it has implications for college papers. It has implications for all kinds of things in our society. We went through an era of alternative facts, and now I don't know where this is. This is like fabricated facts, or I'm not sure what they are. But in any case, we've gone down a different road. But let's talk about your little... Fun experiment, sure. fun in there. Sure,
0: So um, Athen, you produced this segment and you write what are called the show notes. So if you guys, when you listen to the show, if you ever look in the app that you're listening in, and most of you just listen, right? I mean, most people don't read show notes, but we put a lot of information in there, all podcasters do. And uh, there's a link to that in every podcasting app you use. So the show notes were written by Athen every week. But this week, Athen, what did you try to do?
1: Um, well, this week, well, I first I wrote the show notes And then I came up with a prompt for ChatGPT, which is one of the AI programs that we're talking about. And I had ChatGPT write the show notes. So we had two different versions, and they looked very different.
0: Yeah, you said that to get the ones that we actually see, that the three of us hosts see, how many times did you have to ask ChatGPT before you got one that you thought you could even send to us?
1: Oh, it took me many tries. I think probably... Five or six times, I like kept asking like different versions, trying to give examples, and it was uh, nothing like what we normally have.
0: And is is
2: that because you were what you were asking it, or it just wasn't generating the kind of response that you thought would be good?
1: I think it was maybe the question I was asking. It didn't understand what I wanted. It took me maybe six tries to get it to understand what I wanted it to do.
0: And Mary, once you saw this, you used to write show notes, right? At the beginning of this, what did you think of these?
1: Based on the uh, the version that Athens sent to us, it, it was staggering. I mean, it was there were some pretty great similarities between the show notes that Athens wrote versus what ChatGPT came back with. But again, this comes back to what I mentioned earlier that you need to know something in order to know whether or not the information that is generated by AI. Is on yeah, the market.
2: but see right now if AI can create voice and can create text, we don't know if this is actually us right now. <laughs> or or this whole segment was a creature, a a figment of this uh this new stuff that we're all gonna have to deal with. Hint, it really is us. But
0: uh you know, who knew? So science fiction shows and movies, they love to show a future of driverless cars. You know, the vehicle pulls up or maybe it lands if it's flying car. People jump in and away we go to our destination without ever having to take the wheel.
3: Well, actually, that future is already here, well, minus the flying cars part. In cities like Phoenix and San Francisco, there are hundreds of driverless cars that cruise the streets every day. But a lot of people are hesitant to take a ride in one of these AI-powered vehicles.
0: Yeah, maybe that's because of the number of accidents. I mean, in San Francisco it's reported over 200 crashes involving driverless cars. And in fact, the driverless taxi company Cruise, they have stopped operation in San Francisco. The state stopped them from operating after a car driven by a human hit a pedestrian, hurled the pedestrian into the path of the cruise taxi, which then ran the woman over and then dragged her 20 feet behind the rear wheels. Now, fortunately, the pedestrian survived, but the accident has highlighted at least for some people, the risks of these driverless cars.
3: Well, even before this, a 2022 Pew Research poll found that 63% of American adults would not want to ride in a driverless car. Timothy B. Lee has reported for the Washington Post, Box, and Ars Technica, and now publishes the Understanding AI newsletter. Well, I think,
4: you know, anytime there's a new technology, there's some amount of hesitance. And of course, with cars, there's a real safety risk if the car were to malfunction and run into something make the cars harm to the people in the vehicle or people outside the vehicle.
0: Well, back to that pupil. um, In it, 45% of American adults said they believed widespread use of driverless cars would be a bad idea for society. Barely a quarter, just 26% thought it would be a good idea. But do driverless cars
4: really deserve this bad rap? I think that once people have a chance to try it, my experience has been people actually get comfortable pretty quickly. Because the thing about car rides and after a minute, it just gets kind of boring. It's like, okay, the car is driving itself the same way a person would. Right now, driverless cars are only available in a couple of markets, but I think in the places where they are available the people who've actually tried them, I think get comfortable with them more quickly than you might expect. The tricky thing is that human drivers are actually pretty safe. There's a fatal crash about once every 100 million miles. And these uh, autonomous vehicles have only done about 10 million miles driverlessly. And so we just don't have the data yet to say, If you're more or less likely to be in a fatal crash in a driverless vehicle.
3: And it's worth noting here that when we talked about more than 200 driverless car accidents in San Francisco, nearly all of them were actually the fault of human drivers.
4: Most of the crashes they have are cases where there's fault on the other vehicle, at least primarily. There's a lot of rear end crashes, for example, which in most cases the law would say that the car in the back that did the rear ending was at fault. So
0: if these vehicles largely operate safely and cause fairly few accidents, especially compared to us human drivers, what can the industry do to earn back our trust? And Lee has some thoughts on that.
4: One is improving the actual safety and the other is improving public perception. So in terms of the actual safety, I think it's just there's just a lot of hard technical work they need to do. And, and I think the thing that's tricky about it is there's so many weird situations in the world where you know, these companies will try really hard to anticipate all the things that might go wrong. They have test tracks where they go out and they create kind of random situations. They'll stage a situation where a car pulls out from a parking lot or they will have people moving boxes or people at Halloween houses. So they try to think of what's all the weird things that could happen and test them on a test track before they do it in the real world. But the real world is just so complicated that there's always going to be things they don't think of. And so part of it is they just need to make every possible mistake once. And hopefully once they made a mistake once, they'll say, oh, we need to put that in the list. And you know, rent software to fix it. But then in terms of the public perception, I would like to see them be more transparent. One of the things they can do, I think, is they have cameras and sensors all over these vehicles. And so anytime there's an incident, they could release video publicly saying, here's exactly what happened. Public could watch and verify that the way they described it was correct. And I think if they made a practice of doing that, that would bolster public trust in these technologies.
3: I'm not sure that I'd take a ride in a driverless taxi. What do you think, Jay? Yeah. I mean, I haven't had the
0: opportunity to. I know a lot of people have in San Francisco, and I know people in Phoenix. I worked there a long, long time ago. And I don't think that I would be reluctant to, under some circumstances, like, you know, would I get in one at rush hour? Maybe not. Would I get in one at one o'clock in the morning coming over to some place? I mean, maybe, although that could be flipped. I mean, maybe that makes no sense. What would I be doing out at one o'clock in the morning and driving a car? I don't know. What about you?
3: You know, if I took a short drive in one first, got to see how it worked, Maybe I'd consider taking a longer commute in a driverless taxi. But the debate about driverless vehicles is not only about safety, it's also about jobs. Driverless trucks and autonomous taxis will eliminate jobs for those currently working in those positions. But history has shown in general, when technology eliminates one type of job, there are always new ones created.
4: That's kind of how progress works, right? A hundred years ago, like half the population was working on farms. And then we invented all this machinery and all these new uh, techniques to allow people to be more productive. And so as long as you have a healthy economy generally, um, I mean, nobody like dreams of being a taxi driver. Well, maybe not. Probably some people do, but that doesn't mean we'd rather have robot cars driving all over
0: streets instead of human-powered ones. Yet autonomous cars could be a huge boon for the group of Americans that turns out are most resistant to them. In that Pew poll, 74% of people, 50 or over, said they do not want to ride in a driverless car. 74%. But Lee points out they're the ones who actually
4: might benefit the most from autonomous vehicles. You know, when you get old, your eyesight goes, your reflexes get worse. And so there's a lot of people who cease to be able to drive their cars safely.
3: And for people with disabilities, a robust driverless taxi service could offer transportation for a lower price with much greater convenience than existing paratransit or taxi services.
4: This is interesting because actually this issue splits the disability community, I think. Because blind users in particular, I think, are very enthusiastic about this technology because in the long run, it could give them a level of autonomy they didn't have before because human-driven taxis are very expensive and people don't want to have somebody driving them around all the time. So the idea of a car that drives itself so they don't have to have a driver and maybe they can save some money is very appealing. On the other hand, people with wheelchairs are skeptical because currently most of the driverless cars do not offer wheelchair access. I think that's one of the areas of pressure is that some disability groups focus on people with limited mobility are pushing for regulators to not allow the expansion of this technology until the companies do a better job.
3: Still, for as reluctant as Americans seem to be to jump on the AV bandwagon, a 2018 Gallup poll showed that 53% of Americans thought that driverless cars would be common in the coming decade, and 69% of respondents also saw the potential benefits that these cars could provide for the elderly and disabled.
0: Yeah, so while driverless cars have had a rocky start in some ways, the fate of the autonomous vehicle industry is unlikely to rest just on these early statistics and news reports. Nearly every technological revolution has faced resistance before transforming how we live, or in this case, how we get around. And I gotta tell you, I mean, if there were driverless flying cars, I think I'm on board for that right away, right? Yeah, much less traffic, actually, it turns out, in the air. Well, following along on
2: the general theme of this podcast, Uh, Let's go fun fact, Uh, although I think a lot of what we've been talking about has been fairly interesting in and of itself. However, in 1964, the Gallup poll uh, sort of at the not exactly the dawning of uh, the computer age, but certainly at a time when uh, it was sort of starting the whole debate over technology and science and whether this was going to improve things or not. Ask the following of a national audience. Are you glad that science and technology have developed so rapidly, (laughs) little did they know, in recent years? (laughs) Or do you think it would have been better if scientific and technological development, technical development had been at a somewhat slower pace? And here, (laughs) if you've uh, been following this podcast today, be careful what you ask for. 71% said they were really glad that we're really moving into a whole new era, 19% said should be at a slower pace, and uh, 10% said they really didn't know whether it was going too fast or too slow. Surprising? Uh, anyone? Is it a question of be careful what you ask for, which is where I sort of go with this?
1: Well, Lee, I, if this question were asked to you in 1964, I would venture a guess to say that you thought that technology was moving way too fast.
2: I think I probably would have. I think I probably would have. Uh, but it was sort of at the household function level and uh, and some, you know, broad-based communication level. It wasn't anything near what we've been talking about uh, in this podcast. Jay, you were a mere child in those days, I think. Yeah, barely. But...
0: Yeah, I was barely born. I think it's it, there's two things that are interesting about this. One is technological change, I think. And, and again, I'm projecting a little bit and trying to remember my history, but a lot of that had to do with space, um, exactly. right? the space age, and it didn't have to do with computers and it didn't have to do with what we might consider technology now. The second thing I think about this is we ought to put this on a poll. I was I thinking think, the same thing, Jay, yeah.
1: the exact same thing.
0: I think this would be really fascinating and maybe you'd get the same answer. I, I mean, I, I'm going to guess we wouldn't, but I might be really wrong here. Oh, and I, I would love to be, see, I would love to see this question asked and then to break it down by age group too. age. Exactly. I was just going to say age and education, have- age and
2: education. We would know a whole, bunch. I remember back in probably 66, I'm thinking 1966, just soon after this uh, poll was, uh, I'm thinking I was in junior high school. It might've a freshman high school. I was selected by a group, our community as a uh, very much an IBM community and they were running an experiment and they were trying to see how young folks like me at the time uh, would react to this. And we did like a six-Saturday program, and the last class took us to a computer itself, which was, oh, about the size of Grand Central Station in those days. I mean, we were talking huge. And they were running a bunch of tests on us, As I suspect they discarded most of my answers because I probably was lost as I usually am today. But nonetheless, I was selected as a guinea pig. I do recall that, and also, A, they were experimenting with this, and B, how different it has become from what I was looking at way back then to what now is something that is handheld and all kinds of ways of communicating There's just so different.
1: But I'm of two sides of this because it's amazing
3: carrying around a computer in your pocket, and I don't think I would have survived the pandemic as well as I did if I couldn't video chat with my mom during that um, wow. but i think the thing i think didn't travel i wish it had gone slower for laws to catch up because there's a lot of things going on that you know the legal system and legislation just hasn't caught up with
2: right i think you're right anybody got a last word on this or are you gonna leave it right there casey you are the last word until next week
1: Do it for Poll Hut this week. Poll Hub is produced by the Marist Poll at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mary Griffith is our executive producer. Casey Sha is our production
3: supervisor. The Poll Hub team includes Pollis, Hannah Tone, and Rebecca
1: Hendricks. If you enjoy Poll Hub, please consider leaving a review. Positive reviews help other listeners like you find us.
2: If you'd like to learn more about polling and survey science, check out the Marist Poll Academy our free online learning portal.
1: If you have questions for us, tweet them at us at Poll. Remember, you can always tell your smart speaker to play Poll Hub.
0: And with any luck, it'll cooperate.
1: Finally, wherever you listen to Poll Hub, there is a subscribe button. Click It
3: and the latest episode will be ready for you and your podcasting app as soon as it's released.
1: We'll, we'll see, see you next time. time.